Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Sex, Sexuality and Sex Work, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Stewart, a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. Today we will be talking to Vanessa Carlisle about her book titled Take Me With You. It's published by Running Wild Press. And welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing book. And I wondered if you could, if you could tell us about you. Um, you know, I was reading, I was reading the blurb on your book. You're a, you're a PhD, you're a, a death doula, doula? Yes, a death doula. Dom, tell me about you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so this book, the protagonist of the book is a queer sex worker, and so am I. Um, And so there are some aspects of the book that are drawn from lived experience, but it is fiction. It's a novel. And um, so I have been in various forms of sex work for 22 years. I've been organizing in Los Angeles, um, for a little over 10 for various ways of doing sex worker rights and decriminalization, right? We live in this extremely uh, difficult criminalized situation here in the U.S. and in California. Um, And so my PhD dissertation was taking a look at the way sex workers are represented in uh, literature and one of the things that I had originally thought was that there would be a big difference between insider and outsider representations, like people who were looking in on sex work from the outside would say one thing and people who were speaking about sex work from the inside would say something else. Um, and to some extent, that is true, right? We, the, to some extent, that is true, depending on the context. But one thing that came up in my research that really surprised me was that there just aren't that many pieces of fiction that have a sex working protagonist that are written by an out of the closet worker. And um, I was doing a creative writing PhD. And so I really focused on fleshing out a main character who was a sex worker, but um, for whom that wasn't the tragedy of their life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not always the worst thing that ever happens. The thing that would have happened if you were a sex worker would, would be far worse than, 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 than the actual sex work itself. I'm, I'm always really keen when I speak to other sort of like sex working academics because I was, was talking to someone the other day and I've realised I've, I've hustled in every single decade since the 1980s. Nice. (laughs) Not continuously, but yeah, like sort of like different things. And um, I wondered how your sex working had played into your academia. Mm. What came first? Yeah, what came first? 
Um, well, I started stripping in college, so I definitely was trying to change my life through education. And um, I went to a private college and I couldn't really afford to be working as much as I was and get it and getting the grades I wanted. So I was at a private school where other people were getting their um, tuition paid for, for the most part, and not having to work a lot of hours and I couldn't afford it. So I was nannying and it was like, you know, get up at five 30 in the morning, get kids to school, then go to school myself and go get them after. And it was just a grind. Um, so I started stripping at 19 and realized I could support myself working, you know, a third of the hours wearing glitter. It seemed great. (laughs) It worked for me really well. It was, you know, it was 1999 and, um, it was a different era. And I was in Portland, Oregon, which has the most strip clubs per capita of any city in the U S And so it's very normalized part of the culture there. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and then over the years, things changed for me. But definitely sex work and my academic work have been linked because sex work has been a main way that I've been able to stay afloat um, as a student and especially as a grad student and as a Ph.D. student, Um, you know, because I've I've just never I've never come from a situation where I financially could rely on anyone. So, um, yeah, sex work and, and, and academic success have, have definitely required each other in a certain way. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this and I've been talking about this all week to different people. And I really kind of like like how your book picks up on this, because there's a perception within the academic literature that people go into sex work, stay for a while, leave and then never return. Mm-hmm. Never any, you know, there might be an idea that people can maybe do different types of sex work, but I kind of like the the way that your book describes that kind of slide between different forms of sex work, you know. And I, you know, I really enjoyed that. And and for me, um, that really differentiates. Um, uh, the, the sort of type of writing that's done by someone who's got sex work experience and a and an ally, you know. Yeah. Those those wise others that I think Becca talks <laughs> about. Yeah, the, you know, the only relatively wise, and it's that that kind of that that relationship, the relationships that you have, the friends that you make that kind of introduce you to other forms of sex work that I really appreciated about this book that really gave this book a real authentic ring, you know, and I really, I really appreciated that. So, um, thank you. How how autobiographical is this book? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Um, well, my mother is alive. Um, so it's not 100% autobiographical. Uh, and you know, I would say I did a lot of research for this book. There are um, there are communities being depicted in this book that I'm not part of that I spent time uh, working in and interviewing in. Okay. So um, I did have a brief time in my life when I was uh, sort of, you know, mostly living out of my car. So there's sort of there's there's definitely like a a, a realism for me to some of the financial struggle that you see in the book. 
um, that that stuff is definitely born of some awarenesses and real and real experiences in my life. A lot of the sex working experiences are either kind of composites of my own or, you know, of course, I'm part of deep community and I was married um, to somebody who had lived experience. So there's a lot of um, sharing of stories that goes on in those communities. So I borrowed from a lot of people for this book. Um, but one thing that I think is truly autobiographical that that is just part of the main character is the sense that, um, you know, the, the categories that we use to describe ourselves are almost always un, uh, um, unfulfilling. So my professor, Amy Bender, who is a, a great writer and teaches at uh, University of Southern California, told me, I love how this character has such a wide open libido. <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, that's that's me. I've had partners from across the gender spectrum. I've taken all kinds of different roles and I moved into being a pro dom kind of haphazardly and because someone I admired was doing it. Mm-hmm. And those things are in the book. <laughs> those those are depicted in the in the book, right? And so I think that there's 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 a lot of um, integrity to writing from your own sex work experience and working in fiction starts sort of making that complex because there's a number of characters in the book who are houseless, right? There's characters in the book who um, are incarcerated. And so there's, there's experiences that I haven't had directly, but that I've had indirectly as an observer, as a person in a visiting room for a loved one or as a person who spent some time working with an organization on Skid Row in Los Angeles. So um, I'm really trying to come from the perspective of this is fiction, but I did my due diligence where I didn't have lived experience. Okay. I am. So just for the listener who may not have read this book yet, but is going to buy it obviously after they've heard this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you give us a kind of outline of the, the, the story of the book? Sure. Um, so this book follows uh, a main character named Kindred Powell through her childhood and adolescence and into her adulthood. Um, she is a sex worker. She's a queer person and she suffers um, a, a pretty devastating loss early in life. It happens early in the book and there's no, I'm not ruining any plot by telling you that she loses her mother early in the book. Her father, she's, she's, um, raised by white mother and black father. Her father, who is black, is not her biological father. And so there's a lot of um, tension around her understanding of race and her understanding of privilege. Um, she grows up quite poor, but she's she's learning about herself and she's learning about things as she goes um, when her father gets incarcerated. Um, So he becomes radicalized in prison and the story sort of follows the tension of their relationship and then also kindreds emerging into autonomy as a grown person who falls in love with another sex worker, builds a family, builds a life, and then it all kind of gets shaken up when her father Carl goes missing. Mm. Yeah, I like I kind of liked the interplay with Carl because you know, like I was, I was under the impression that actually Kindred had a really good insight into the sort of like the, the white privilege, even for someone who's experiencing poverty. And you just mm-hmm. you describe poverty really, really well in this book. Mm, thank you. 
I liked that kind of like scrabbling around for change for to pay the meter whilst they're waiting for the at the at the bail office. Yeah, there's lots of kind of like little references to poverty that that were quite actually they really reminded me of what it was like to be poor. You know, it's not like I'm rich now, but I've forgotten certain things like how tiring carbohydrates get. You know, you talk about how how bored she gets of noodles. Yeah, so then um, right. you can go get some pizza, but we've got twelve dollars. <laughs> and that's like okay okay you forget about that don't you you know it's um and that was that was really good but she really catches on she really like listens to to this to to her stepfather Carl and it seems to be that her mother is the one that has an issue with with the kind of the um the realization around um you know white privilege even when you're when you're poor I mean exactly yeah it's arrested and beaten up by the police you know she's like well what did you do to deserve it basically you must have done something right and there's all of these cringe sort of cringy moments with the mom where you can feel she doesn't get it she doesn't understand she doesn't understand what's going on here and she's she's very much in her daily life grind, right? She's, she's, she's working more than one job. Usually she's exhausted. She's one of these people who wouldn't understand the notion of privilege, you know, too easily because she feels like her life is super hard. Um, And her whiteness not being the reason for her oppression would be very confusing for Kindred's mom. That's just like not stuff she ever gets a chance to talk with her about. But you do, I think, have exposure in, in, in the story to the ways in which white people from lower classes get very confused about privilege when they hear it because of how difficult it is to see it in their daily lives. You know, it's obviously operating. I mean, one of them gets arrested and one of them doesn't, right? So it's obviously operating, but it's still very, very difficult for Kindred's mom to catch on. And Kindred is much sharper at that. She sees it a lot more quickly. Um, and, you know, Carl is training her from very young to understand power in, in the world and to understand resistance. So she's she has a complicated relationship with it. So I think... Yeah, you drop authors into this, like you. Um, you mentioned Angela Davis. You mentioned Paolo Ferrer. It's almost like it's like little breadcrumbs to educate your readers. I really appreciated that kind of that device that you used. I, I can I can imagine when I was reading it because it's I've got mixed race kids who actually are really white presenting, but a mixed race, and um, I imagined them reading this when they were a bit, you know, as as late teenagers you know, mm. wanting them to kind of, uh, you know, sort of follow that hint towards Angela Davis, towards Charlotte for her. I thought it was really good. I also really liked how you talked about, um, oh, there were a couple of phrases that, that, you, that you used that really resonated with me. One was secrecy is power. <laughs> yeah. Really like from a sex working point of view, that is really sort of that's really powerful when you get to know what someone's secret is it's not so much a blackmailing tool but it's more of a kind of I know what it is that made you tick that's what kind of keeps people coming back isn't it is that that kind of uh that sort of like heterotopic space that you can build with someone when you're the one person that they can find in they confide in and I really liked that I really uh, and there was quite a few things through this book that as a former sex worker myself, 
really resonated with me. You know, mm. that, kind of, um, that secrecy is power thing was really, that really blew me away. That was really good. I really liked that. that really oh, thank you. Yeah. The other thing I really liked as well is um, this phrase, caught the darkness. Mm. Caught the darkness. Oh, so this is one of those um, conceits of fiction where the first time I heard that phrase, it was a Leonard Cohen song. Okay. And I wrote it back in time and wrote it into a, a, another, a, another scenario. I, I borrowed it. <laughs> I borrowed it and I elaborated with it. And it's something that I think very well describes sort of um, in a way that's less clinical, right? An episodic depression that has a, a, a real malaise in, in, in it. And the idea is that, you know, somebody who's, who's sort of gone wild on something, who's, who's having an, an agitated experience usually can calm down. But someone who's caught the darkness uh, needs help to get out. And that it's a place where if you're left alone, um, you know, you can get swallowed by it. You can get lost in it. You can, you can stay there. And because Kindred witnesses, this knows that it's a possibility, watches her mother go there. um, She spends a lot of her life fighting it, right. Sort of in this, in this desperate way, sometimes just like, I I have to figure out how to stay alive. Um, so yeah, I, and that some of that stuff is quite personal. I mean, some of that is definitely about my own um, ways of thinking about mental health struggle and depression and the isolation that can come from some of these experiences. How hard it is to find communities where people really share, um, really share a sensibility about uh, about life. And I, I find that caught the darkness is a way for me to feel it, think it. And let it be poetic, <laughs> let, you know, let it, let it be art as opposed to letting it be a clinical diagnosis that consumes me. Yeah. And also as well, now that you mentioned it is a sort of Le- a Len- a Leonard Cohen phrase, it would make sense when, you know, young couples do that, don't they? They kind of, you know, they latch onto a phrase that's particularly like relevant to you. You listen to songs, don't you, when you're, you're the age that these people are. And, you know, you, you kind of talk about those things. It becomes, you know, you own that phrase that makes real, that really makes sense. Although, you know, it's quite funny as well, because I, I, don't, I don't even know if it's, um, it's almost like the darkness catches you. Mm-hmm. continuously throughout this book is especially around Carl and and around um, Kindred is a attempt not to be caught by the darkness it's almost like you know the, the darkness catches the mother but doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't catch those two because of their their efforts to avoid it mm-hmm. they can't avoid it so you talk about you talk about Kindred living in a car when she's after her mother's died and Carl's in prison and she tries really hard to to, to put a distance between herself and the darkness yeah so she talks a lot about sort of substance use and you know that sort of stuff and she she's she like I really got that sense with these two survivors is they're constantly trying to move away from this kind of the 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 kind of the early death that's on the heels of both of them yes yes 
And it's difficult when you've suffered something like that to connect with people who haven't. So forever forward, Kindred has to be careful how she talks about her life, right? Because the instant you tell someone, you know, my mom died when I was 17. Now there's pity in the conversation. Now there's people being uncomfortable, right? And I gave Kindred a number of these things as a character. Sex work is one of these things for me, where every time I come out as a sex worker, now I have to navigate whatever the bullshit is that's going on on the other person's end, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, queerness can be like that, although I, I'm grateful to be living in an era where that's less of a danger to me. Yeah. Um, you know, kink can be like that. Um, there's all of these things that when you speak with people about them, you know, if you don't know the people and you don't know the situation very well, coming out is always a risk to, to find out, you know, just what, um, just what discomfort you'll be managing from the other side. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting as well. Like, cause I, you know, it's so funny when you say that about sort of like how you're going to manage other people's bullshit. Like as soon as you admit to being a sex worker at any stage, you instantly they're like gang of like sort of turfs trying to rescue you you know <laughs> <laughs> send out food parcels or something but it's really funny as well because it's that you know like the poverty that that they, they experience as a family that she experiences as a young woman a theme of really grinding poverty um that doesn't seem to attract that same, that same sort of sympathy does it Oh, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. No, especially, I mean, especially not in the States. It's like we have this, uh, you know, incredible prejudice against people who come from poverty. And so you're, you know, you're just considered to have been born into a situation that you should have been able to change. And if you can't, if you can't get out of it, that's your own fault. You did something wrong. That's the, that's definitely the narrative we have. So it's like, I, I often think of stigma as being the twin, the twin faces of stigma are pity and disdain. Yeah. Right. And so if pity's not operating, disdain might be. Yeah. Because if you're in a stigmatized situation, one of those things is probably going on and sometimes both. Yeah. And so as far as being poor, yeah, it's disdain. Yeah. And it's quite funny as well, because when you talk about um, one of her customers, I can't remember his name. And he's made money and he, mm -hmm. he emphasizes the fact that she is aware of the fact that he, he believes that you like money doesn't make you, you make money work for you. And then so some, some people, some people work for their money and other people's money works for them. That's it. That's the one. Yeah. And that came directly out of the mouth of the client. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll show, I mean, we're on a podcast so people can't see it, but it was, I, I want to show you my strained neutral face that I have to make when clients say things like that, you know, where you're just like, hmm, interesting, you know, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go feel very strong anti-capitalist feelings about that later. <laughs> yeah. Some people are lucky to have that choice. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I, now, I really picked up on this theme of poverty all the way through because it's really funny that, that part of the book is set in Bushwick because I spent a summer two years ago in Bushwick and you talk about this kind of optional poverty that is mm. 
you know, I think you said, I think, what was it, sort of squalor and coconut water or something like that. <laughs> and, and it's very, very true, isn't it? She's kind of, she's removed herself from a family situation after, the, after her mum's died and after Carl's gone to prison. And she, she's kind of like entered this kind of queer community where she gets some acceptance. But there's also, they're, they're quite patronising to her around her poverty, you know, a, they're quite patronising to her. And I wonder if that's because she comes from a much poorer background than, than they do. But it also really picked up on this class thing that I am aware of among sex workers, mm-hmm. you know, especially among act- activist groups. Yes, yes. I think it's really difficult for us to face class shame. And I think, I think the pain of classism is one of the darker, more unspoken areas. So sex worker organizers uh, in the past few years have really had to face the way racism has operated in sex worker organizing, right? You, you, you can't not be working on that anymore. Um, when I first started organizing, those conversations were really hard to have. They weren't happening. This is 10 years ago. And now they're happening. And it's really good to see. Um, I'm sure they were happening in various forms the whole way along. But a lot of the spaces I was in um, there was just a lot of, you know, sort of unconscious privilege happening. And that has changed. But when it comes to class and the intersections of race and class, um, I think our analysis is st- still in its sort of nascent stage. I think that sex worker organizers are still really struggling to figure out how not to be in the hierarchy, you know, looking down on people who do different forms of work. Uh, feeling their own maybe pity for outdoor workers or, or people who are um, in, in more difficult situations, right? So it's really a mindset and a worldview to adopt to say someone who's in a situation that looks like it's really hard from my perspective, that person has survival strategies, resiliency strategies, and stuff going on that I don't know about that I have to respect from not knowing, yeah. I have to respect it from my position of not knowing and, and to understand that, that class differences um, need to be gently acknowledged and respected at all times. Um, I just, I think that that's a, that's a really, really difficult thing to get a room full of people to do. Yeah, totally. It was because I was, re- I was really um, sort of like, I really smirked when she, in she, she meets um, what, what becomes a, later on a partner, Nautica. And Nautica totally dismisses her whole experience. It's <laughs> just being like fundamentally abusive. No, you're doing it all wrong. You need to be doing it like this. <laughs> you know? And don't tell, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to tell people that you're doing full service, full service sex work, don't call it that. Call it girlfriend experience or whatever, because you're going to upset their sensibilities if you talk about your life. You know, and yeah. I, that was that I really like that I really because that's you know I am I have I've had this discussion before when I've been doing research with people who have gone you know because there's there's an issue here isn't there that that certain types of sex worker get to speak for for the majority of sex workers mm-hmm. yes I mean how much research goes on that goes to sex work activist groups for their contact. And I read sometimes, I'm sure we're, we're, we're hearing the same sex workers giving the same interviews over and over again, because most sex workers aren't activists. Right. 
And so the, the, the sort of more active, uh, the more kind of like politically engaged tend to get the voice, don't they? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And they often are bullying towards sex workers who don't have all the right language or who aren't, who aren't coming from the same perspective. Um, you know, I, I, the way you have to identify as a sex worker, like take it on as an identity to even be an activist pushes out a ton of people who would rather not have that be a big part of their identity. Right. Um, and, and it's very attractive, I think for, for, you know, white, more privileged workers because it's a marginalization and, and it's like, Oh good. I can name this thing. I can give it a name. I can step into an identity that's marginalized that actually makes sense for me with what I've been experiencing. But that's a, that's like a very particular scenario, very particular situation. Um, and a lot of people with lived experience in the trades don't give a fuck about that whole process that white ladies are doing. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you bridge some of those gaps in conversation? I mean, as from my perspective, my job is to, uh, you know, turn, turn, turn the light the other direction instead of saying, instead of saying, you know, the problem is the outside world with all of their stigma, which of course it is. Um, I'm, I'm sort of turning the light back around and saying, okay, but within our communities, how are we treating each other and how can, how can we, improve our own ability to listen to each other and to show up more fully for each other's experience yeah and it's quite it's because I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of days because various things have happened in my life and I was you know it's it's quite interesting isn't it when we talk about sex work because the stories that we get tend to be the stories of people that that are in some way need to be in contact with an activist group or they've they've engaged with some sort of um gatekeeper in some way whereas I you know if it wasn't for you know if it wasn't you know like Nautica's involvement with the um with the with the the uh the sort of brothel that they they work in the, the dominations sort of dungeon that they work in I mean you can have you can have a crew like that and never come into contact with the police and never come into contact with an activist group because actually your career is not in any way problematic you might meet some people you don't particularly like but you know, you're not particularly victimized by your work any more than you would be in any other service industry. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. silent voices of the people that kind of go through a career and don't really have any ag at all that we always we don't get, do we? We don't we don't hear them. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of very vocal doms who are doing a lot of activism in a way that has sort of an imagined uh, camaraderie with other sex workers that, that those other sex workers may not actually feel with those doms. <laughs> and I, you know, it, I, that's a difficulty, right? That's a difficulty. And, and, it, but it is an interesting little gray area to me. It's a very interesting area. When someone asked me recently, you know, why do you feel comfortable telling people that you're a dom publicly? Like, doesn't that put you at risk the same way that saying you you're a full service sex worker does? And I said, you know, it might, it might. But from from what I've seen, the cops are really not sure what to make of uh, penetrative sex that is pegging. Like, you know, they don't. They understand that if a vagina is penetrated, something bad has happened, but they have a hard time 
with the concept that a man getting his butthole penetrated by a dom is somehow also victimizing the dom. Like they can't, like all of the structures of victimization that we're trying to place on the sex work get really upended in the femdom scenario. They get twisted up, right? And that's, I mean, it's fun. It's, it's fun, but of course also it's, it's not, but it's, it's just an interesting place to be thinking for me. It's, it's really funny, isn't it? Because like, we never talk about it. It's the same way we never talk about sort of sex work and clinics and stuff like that. It's like, <laughs> but it's really funny, isn't it? It's like, if a vagina is not ejaculated in, even if it's covered with a condom, then it's not so bad. But if right. someone is coming, yeah, a woman is coming in some way, it, suddenly it becomes a lot worse. But even within the community, because... You know, I wonder if like doms are more articulate because there's not that exchange of seminal fluid. You're not coming into contact with seminal fluid. I mean, it might be floating about, but you're not touching it. And I wonder if that <laughs> gives them the, 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 that, that distance to be able to speak mm. from that. Yeah, that's interesting. I just um, I just flashed to a, um, a talk that I give on sort of a sex work stigma 101 talk that I give in college classes a lot where we name the stigma, we talk about it. And, um, you know, it's very disturbing to name the stigma because everyone knows it. Everyone has it at the ready. You know, it's the same 10 things on the board every time I do this. But every once in a while, someone will throw in a name that people call us that I, I, you know, just gives me a little shiver. And one of them that I hear a lot is cum dumpster. Yeah. Right. This idea that you are the receptacle, you are a trash receptacle um, for the, you know, for the, for the seminal fluid of, of your clients. And you can't call a dominatrix a cum dumpster. It just doesn't work because that's actually not what she's, she's not like receiving fluid, right? You shouldn't call anyone that. But the idea that, it, that it's coming into contact with penises, coming into contact with, you know, the orgasm, the male orgasm, the, the cum itself, that that's like part of the problem. I think that's a big, I think that's a big deal. I think that's like a, I think that's a major question for all of the rhetoric we've got going into policy and law enforcement. It's just like, are you actually just kind of grossed out by cum? Is that really what's going on? Because that feels basic to all of this stuff. Yeah, and it, and it feeds into those kind of middle, like, Victorian discussions about diseased, odorous, like... Yes. And it talks about diseased, odorous prostitutes. And it's really funny as well, because I keep saying it's really funny, I'm going to stop doing it. Um, <laughs> is, I read one of the phrases, again, there were these little hooks for me all the way through this book. Listening is like letting someone touch you. Mm. And I really like that because it made me think of Dom's. Now, I was getting this slight sense of superiority from, from Nautica because she doesn't actually, oh, no, they don't touch me. You've been abused because this man has put his finger up your ass in the strip club. But actually, like, you know, um, Dom's, yeah, or role players, yeah, they can be the repository of some really unpleasant, like, societal stuff. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That notion that listening is like letting someone touch you. Thank you for pulling that phrase. I, I, um, 
when I was working on this book a number of years ago, I was dating someone who was doing uh, sound studies. And we had all of these beautiful, interesting conversations about how the senses work, and particularly how um, I have a sort of mild form of synesthesia where um, uh, many sounds I experience as, as physical touch. Um, so my skin responds to sounds in a certain way that um, I, I found out is not normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and <laughs> Some people can say something and it goes straight to my stomach. I, I feel you. So my sense of this is that, you know, because you can't selectively hear, because hearing is this constant um, sort of availability, if, if you are a hearing person, of course, right, this, this presumes that you have access to that sense, that you have a, a kind of generalized availability to sound in a way that being in a body amongst other bodies, you also have a sort of generalized availability where people can touch you. And this sense that things you hear, things that come into your body via your ears, they stick with you, they stay with you, they affect you in much the same way that touch can. Hmm. Um, and I, I do think that our vulnerability as sex workers is sometimes very misunderstood because as a dom, sure, this guy might be tied up and I might not be in physical, you know, in, in any physical danger, but the things that he has said or the things that he wrote or the things that come out of, you know, come out of the scene might still be uh, uh, quite, quite troubling to me or, or cause, or cause me, um, or cause me harm. So, yeah, I think that the, I, I think that expanding our understanding of, how people can affect each other is is worthwhile. I think I think as well. And this is quite quite odd, but as a mother, right, I was more concerned about her being a dom, especially considering she's she's been through quite an early sort of traumatized traumatized sort of like sort of sort of a uh, sort of teenage year where she'd like lost her mother very early and then her dad had gone to prison. She didn't have been orphaned. Yeah, very kind of like very raw. I kind of liked her dancing a little bit more, a bit more removed. I like the fact that she was earning plenty of money. Wasn't a man shoving his thumb up her bottom. Right? <laughs> but I liked the fact that she wasn't getting up close and personal with like these really quite, you know, quite sort of disturbed sometimes people or at least controlling. Because that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing that we never talk about when we talk about domination work is, well, it's from the bottom up, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's still a service yeah. yeah it's still a service which means that you still have the complexity of a client relationship happening no matter what yes as far as a terrible dom I, like, I don't do safety words if you're tied up you're gonna get what you're given <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> I hear I hear you though I mean sh her vulnerability is she, she's quite resilient she's very um scrappy in a way right this character of kindred but she's also really vulnerable to things she's curious and so she'll just try stuff and people like who who have that um are are vulnerable to things going wrong and you know i think that that's that's definitely part of what her girlfriend sees in her like her girlfriend 
Nautica loves her for this, like sort of admires it in her, but also is like, okay, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> like you, you also kind of, you need to, you need to have um, a little more grounded sense of what your boundaries are. Kindred's, Kindred had struggles with her boundaries. And, you know, we don't use those words in the book necessarily too much, but that's, that's, that's definitely what she's doing. Um, and that is something that felt very true to my experience, true to the experience of, you know, trying to find your way through sex work in the era before it was all um, being documented and, 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 you know, organized online, because this book ends in like 2012. Yeah. And so the era in which Kindred is is finding these clients is not the era of 100 Instagram communities. No. Um, she's doing a lot of it on her own. But also as well, it's like, and I, th- I think what, the, what really came across for me in this book is the difference between how, how uh, Kindred enters sex work and how Nautica, uh, am I pronouncing her name right? Uh, yes. Enters sex work. Now, for Kindred, like there's, um, she talks about, uh, describes having sex for somewhere to, to sleep. Yeah, you know, like like what we so loosely term survival sex, although I'm right. Um, and so there's a more, it's more of a kind of like a sort of slide into sex work because of a lack of other options for her. So the boundaries are like a bit more blurred. Yeah, when mm-hmm. you know, where does the entrance come in if you're if you're sleeping for some with someone for somewhere to live and then they give you a, like a fifty you know fifty dollars on top or something you know? Whereas with Nautica, it's more of a choice. It's more of a life yes. choice. So you can be boundaried when you've got options, but when your your options aren't so, um, you, you haven't got that many options. You kind of like it's a kind of you know it's eat or or you know it's have somewhere to sleep or you know sleep on the sleep in your car like she does on often on numerous occasions. But then it's quite hard to be boundaried, isn't it? And yes, I, I get that kind of like. You know, I find Nautica's uh, attitude to her quite, quite patronizing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, I just think Nautica's really patronizing. <laughs> it is. It's an interesting area for them, right? Like it, and I think that it is. I, I, I love that. I love that you're going after Nautica. She's like. Yeah, she's a little bit untouchable, right? She's a little bit superior. She's a little bit untouchable. She's quite powerful. And also she has opinions about everything. And and Kindred sort of blossoms under that focus, like in the way that some submissives do, right? That being being focused on actually helps her self-develop. But Nautica isn't isn't sweet about it. And, And they disagree about Kindred's experience in a way that I think really illustrates not just how this happens internally to our communities, but how people who are not sex workers feel like they have a right to tell us what our experience is. So Nautica is a sex worker. So there's a little bit of like, you know, ownership feeling that she has, but at the same time, she's never done what Kindred's done. She has no idea what it feels like to be in those situations. And you can feel that it's not quite right for her to have an opinion about it because kindred is the one who should be able to say, this is what happened. This is what it means to me. And that's the story, you know, and that's a big part of my intervention. I think in fiction, um, 
I'm just going to hold because there's a noisy, noisy car out there. Um, that's part of my intervention in fiction is feeling like, you know, I am very tired of reading sex working characters who have easily classifiable experiences from the outside. Yeah. And I, I think having a character that says, yeah, I was 18, which is young. And this guy wanted to suck on my feet. And that was weird, but it was also kind of nice. And I didn't mind it. Like that story is so confusing to people (laughs) that it's like, we need to be able to tell it. We need to be able to tell stories that have a a kind of complexity around um, whether it was good for us or bad for us. And um, so that's, yeah, that's Nautica's function. (laughs) We talk about sort of like having sex for money. We talk about prostitution. We talk about sex work, but we never mention the benefits of the money. Okay, somebody spending an awful lot of time on your feet. Kind of weird, kind of cool, money very good. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like these kind of like this idea of like something being traumatizing sort of like or you know because Nautica's really hot is, is it Nautica that sort of like tells her that she's been abused later yes <laughs> Nautica does this a lot doesn't she? she's always telling her she's been abused um but it's almost like she doesn't seem to recognize the abuse of poverty right how much more abusive is poverty than than than, than someone worshiping your feet I mean uh, we can get into this whole sort of discussion about sort of like the power play of that man who was you know in a position of authority in her life wanting to like worship her feet but yeah it's kind of like it's it's she can be very one-dimensional can't she Nautica she can I think she can but I also think that part of it is you know, she's, she's also coming from her own marginalization from not being a white person, not, you know, having to be in the world in a way that, that um, she's, she's had to struggle in her own way. And so, you know, her sense of self-respect and power and decisiveness is hard, is hard one. It's supposed to read as a little bit hard one. And so when she judges Kindred's experience, it's, it's sort of in that way that like, you know, you, you're looking at somebody who you know has a ton of potential and you wish that they would just live up to it. Yeah. And it, and it has that quality of kind of tough love, family love that at least it, that was the intention um, was that, that that relationship is quite sturdy and that their love for each other is, you know, maybe it has a little dependency built in because kindred comes from all of this trauma. Maybe it has a little bit of bossiness built in because that's Nautica's personality, but that ultimately those things are sort of, are sort of mitigated by how deeply they do care for each other and how well they take care of each other. You know, there's a lot of so. going on as well, isn't there? Like, like education in the ways of of how you need to survive mm-hmm. survival level live level living. You know, like so. And and I get that from two of the characters in this book. Carl does this for her beautifully from prison, and I think you captured that really well because I come from a a traveler background. A lot of our men go to prison. And so there is this attempt to parent from 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 within prison, and he tries to do that. He really mm-hmm. does, you know. He he tries to get her to read. He tries to get her to engage. He does what he can do. He tries to educate from from within the prison system, and it's and it's the same with Nautica. She tries to educate her in the ways of life, the the, the kind of, you know, the 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 not so much the the day to day struggle, but the kind of stuff that you need to get on a bit further. You know, that's. Mm-hmm 
respecting boundaries, that that recognizing your own as a, your own selfhood. And she does that, you know, she does do that. I just think she's quite pussy. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> but I am. Um, but that's that's. I just, I just, I think I think it's because she reminds me of my kids. Like talk to me like that all the time. <laughs> I liked as well, and I thought you did this really well. Is you talked really well about the impact that criminal justice system has on the whole family when someone is incarcerated. You captured that really well. Mm, thank you. Well done for that. Well done for that. that yeah. The devastating effect that, that, that Carl's imprisonment has on Kindred's mother, the waiting for the phone calls, going to the prison. And what I really liked as well, and what you've done really well, and what I've seen people in my family experience, is how the prison um, criminalises the families. Right. I've seen kids being searched going into prisons. Mm-hmm. Kids taking in drugs into prisons. It's prison. It's prison officers. Let's not get it twisted. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that was uh, that was really really well observed. Thank you. Yeah. That the gender the gender violence that occurs there too. Right. Of you you can't you can't go in to visit with any um, any part of your body showing that they decide shouldn't be shown. And if your curves are too visible, you have to change your clothes. I mean, that's part of the scene that um, where Kindred is, is trying to figure out, you know, oh, do I have the right pants in my car for today? Um, and I, I experienced that directly visiting um, a loved one in prison. I, you know, some of that is autobiographical in the sense that it's drawn from from, from things that I've been through. Um, and I do think that that devastation and the way that, you know, you, you have to, you feel your own fear, uh, walking in to visit somebody and you immediately feel guilty for feeling it. Cause you're not the one who's incarcerated and you shouldn't feel bad because you're the one from the outside. You know, there's, there's all of this kind of, you know, complex, painful stuff that happens for families that, um, you know, we're, we are rightfully focused on um, our incarcerated loved ones and, and freeing them. We are rightfully focused on that. But one of the main reasons why we need to do that is because of the impact that sprawls out across families and communities. Yeah. So. I mean, I, like, like I said, I come from a, a traveling sort of like background and the devastation on our community by, by the, the prison experience is, is, equal to the sort of like the black community in America and mm. that sort of the devastation of of to a family of of a, of a man who then becomes uh, institutionalized and can't reconnect in the way that Carl can't after he comes out is is really you know you picked that up really well I really really you know I really got that and it also really put her into context you know she might not. She might not be as come as far as Nautica would probably feel comfortable with her coming, but when you see what a starting off point is, she's doing mm-hmm. amazingly well. Right, she's doing amazingly well. And what I also get through all of this is there's a there's a kind of it's almost like the miseducation of Nautica, isn't it? Uh, but, uh, sorry, I've um, kindred. <laughs> of kindred she's getting all this she's getting all this help from different people but i get the impression she's also going to be passing through here as well soon she's she's like she's building up speed 
Mm, I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, and it is, those impacts are things that, you know, I, I mean, when I was working on the book, I wanted her to find him. Right. And that desire is, is part of the, is, is part of the larger story. So without going too much into the plot so that people can, can, can make their own way through the plot. I think that Carl ending up on Skid Row in the first place has everything to do with his incarceration and nothing to do with his work ethic or his intelligence or whatever, right? Like all of these things, all of these stigmatizing things people want to think about who ends up houseless. Mm. Um, It's very clear that, you know, that Carl was discriminated against in in the job market because of having a felony, right? So we have this, we we have this kind of, um, it's almost like, I had to be very careful not to make that too cliche. It's so common. Mm. And um, I I was reading recently numbers about about, uh, traveling communities, incarceration rates in traveling communities and how similar they are. Right. And that and that the incarceration rates are just as high in in places where the overall incarceration rate is way lower than the U.S. So there's even a more in, in some ways, there's an even more dramatic uh, disparity for traveling communities because of how different that incarceration rate is versus um, the the rest of the population of the area. Yeah. And when you have that going on, I mean, people who don't have incarceration as part of their family's experience have a very difficult time understanding the runaround, the 18 phone calls you have to make just to make sure you've got the visiting hours right on this particular day. The, the way that they lock them down without telling you, you drive two hours to get there and now you can't see your loved one. The, the exorbitant charges for phone calls, right? Like people who don't have contact with the system, when they hear about these things, they're like, what? They can't do that. And you're just like, um, yes, they can. Yeah. They do. It's a feature. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember, like, obviously, my, my, I'm a criminologist by, like, tr- you know, sort of training. And when I say criminologist, I'm not CSI. I'm definitely <laughs> NWA. Yeah. And it's saying that whole industry that's built around, like, sort of prisons, you know, that sort of the, the telephones that they have in there, the amount of money that they make from just, like, upping the charges. But also, as well, like, you get this real sense of the of the of of how trapped Carl is because, in most states, once you've been in prison, you lose your right to vote. So you can't change the system either. And it doesn't matter how hard you try and change yourself, you know, or at least your outward appearance if the, you know, if the system is built against you. And it's, yeah, I just thought you, I just thought you did that really well. And you know what? I've really enjoyed this book. I read it twice. That's why, you know. But oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> I was late to our date because I read the book again. Um, and it is really, really good. So tell us, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you personally. What is a death doula? Oh, yeah. A death doula is a person who provides non-medical support for dying people and their loved ones. So, um, you know, when you think about the role of a birth doula as a person who sees a laboring person through their birth experience, right. And who interfaces with medical, who, um, helps coach people through the understanding of the stages of labor, right. That's the, the, the doula model is very similar. 
So a death doula is a person who has some experience with and training around the stages of the end of life, who, who can come to a family or a community of people around a person with a, either with a terminal diagnosis or at end stage of life, or even quite a bit before mm-hmm. to help make the plans to help with understanding paperwork, to help with creating ritual and meaning and space for, you know, conversations that need to happen that are sometimes very difficult to have. Um, So personally, my orientation as a death doula is mostly around um, creating uh, meaningful connections and communication towards the end of life and helping people plan for their end of life so that um, they get to have the good death that they want um, as much as as is possible, and it's um, it's something that means a lot to me. I I was a caregiver and bore witness to my grandmother's death last year, and and I I had already done some death doula training because I had a friend who was dying of cancer um, a, a, about a year and a half ago, and I I felt like oh my god I don't know anything and I need to help. Um, and I realized that as a sex worker, I have all of this comfort with just the body. Like, I just don't have, you know, I I don't have any difficulty dealing with bodies. Um, and I also understand bodies in kind of extreme states, right? Bodies in altered states. I've helped people with their, you know with their LSD trips. I've, I've, I've coached people through their panic attacks, like sex, like sex workers are sometimes in touch with very extreme states of the body. Yeah. Um, and that death and the silence in the, in the U S around death is, um, very similar to the taboo we have around talking about sex in a lot of ways. And so I saw all these parallels, all these overlaps. And, um, and I just, I pursued a training program and, um, and now it's part of what I do. Yeah, I think that's quite, I, I, I liked that as well. I like that about your resume because I just think that we don't talk about this ever, about the role of sort of sex workers and the wisdom of sex workers. I mean, mm. you know, I know there are certain types of like sex work that, that almost acts as a sort of like heterotopia, like a kind of space out of space. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever talks about the types of conversation we hear because academia focuses, is entirely obsessed on the sex aspect of sex work. Totally obsessed. Totally. And still quite prim and like unable to really talk about it though, right? Like obsessively focused without being calm. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... You can't have sex for money, but we're not going to talk about the sex thing. And we're definitely not going to talk about anything else that goes on around it. And it's, um, you know, and I just, I just found that really interesting because I had a similar experience with my grandmother actually died a couple of years ago. And I know it was a great comfort to her because of how we, you know, I could just see what she needed. Sometimes it was as simple as like, you know what? You just need, you, you, you just need a Starbucks for a straw sometimes, yeah? You need mm. Different taste, a different sensation. You, need, you know what? You need smut on your lips because you're looking parched. You, you, know, you know, it's almost like you can read between the words because that's what we're trained to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also um, I, 
I am able to take people for their word in the moment, right? So however someone shows up is how they are and it's how I'm dealing with them. And I, my grandmother had dementia. And so, you know, she was saying all kinds of wild things towards the end of her life. And I, I really enjoyed her. I was able to connect with her. I was able to spend time with her listening to music, spend time with her, you know, telling uh, rambling, strange stories because my training, my many years of being a sex worker have told me what it looks like to meet people where they're at in order to support whatever it is they're trying to do. And, you know, that sounds simple, but it's not, you know, I, I wish more teachers did it. I, I wish more, more therapists did it, you know, it, it, to come in without a particular agenda and to say, how are we today? And what support needs to happen? Like, that's just, um, that's an orientation that I learned as a sex worker that I've been able to transfer into my end of life care in a way that's been uh, really meaningful. And, you know, I think it's also the way that as far as I'm concerned, the hookers in my life are the most honest. (laughs) Like, they will tell you that the hookers in my life will see what's happening, tell you what's happening and take action on what's happening faster than anybody else. <laughs> they're just like, oh, I see. <laughs> no, there is no coincidence that they come after us so hard. You don't try to oppress what you're not threatened by. And why wouldn't you be threatened by sex? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Masters hate us because <laughs> they can't be us. Yeah. So tell us, what else have you got planned? What's what's on your agenda? Your what's what have you got coming up in the future? Oh, that's exciting! So, take me with you. The novel is available for pre-order. Comes, it'll be shipped June first. So I'm very excited about that. Who's publishing? I have, I have an article uh, that's forthcoming in the South Atlantic Quarterly. Um, it's it, the title is "Sex Work Is Star Shaped," and it's it's a <laughs> it's a piece about a lot of the issues we're talking about now embodied knowledges right uh what it means to be people who are creating spaces for new knowledges about uh the world through these um networks and experiences that aren't easily categorizable so that's coming out South Atlantic quarterly there's a special issue that's all about sex work i'm very grateful to be part of it edited by Heather Berg, um, who her, her book Porn Work just came out. Um, her work. She's all like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's exciting. And then I'm also teaching a writing class um, that will be available. It's going to be a pre recorded class so people can do it on their own time through Pulp, which is a little magazine I adore. They have a, they have a, platform called pulp public school um so later on in june that'll be posted and it's a writing course that's really centered on you know getting at all your senses in your writing remembering that most writers privilege the visual and have a very difficult time really getting at sensations in the body right so we've got cliches we've got frog in the throat we've got stomach dropping we've got certain cliches about the body but getting more creative, more, more sensitive to what the body is actually telling us and being able to put that on the page. So I'm excited for that class too. That sounds awesome. Do you, do you have a link to the, uh, the Atlantic um, article? The South Atlantic? I don't have a link for it yet because we're still uh, in, proof, in the proofing stage, but 
as soon as I have it, I'll send it to you and I can, I can put the link for take me with you. Um, I can give you the, the pre-sale link for that. Yeah. And if you, if you can, because for the, for the listeners, I will pop it into the blog that comes along with this, with this podcast. It's been an Great. absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed your book. I really okay. enjoyed your book. It was so nice. Thank you so much, Rachel. It was, it was a really, really interesting read. It was a really good read. I recognized characters I've met in my own life. Mm. Lots of characters, especially Nautica, I seem to me are a lot in different, <laughs> in different bodies. I did, I, I really identified with, with Kindred. I've met Kindred several times in my life, you know. Um, yeah, you did a really, really good job. So thank you. Shameless plug at this point. Who are you? What's the name of the book? Oh, thank you. My name is Vanessa Carlisle, and the novel is called Take Me With You, available from Running Wild Press. Thank you so much. My name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. 